I spoke of the difference between our two countries. I try to follow the humor of the Russian people. We don't hear much about the Russian people. We hear about the Russian leaders. But you can learn a lot because they do have a sense of humor and you can learn from the jokes they're telling. And one of the most recent jokes I found kind of personally interesting, maybe you might tell you something about their country. The joke they tell is that an American and a Russian were arguing about the differences between our two countries. And the American said, look, in my country, I can walk into the Nobel office, I can hit the desk with my fist and say, President Reagan, I don't like the way you're governing the United States. And the Russian said, I can do that. The American said, what? He says, I can walk into the Kremlin, into Brezhnev's office, I can pound Brezhnev's nest desk and I can say, Mr. President, I don't like the way Ronald Reagan is governing the United States. <laughs> Thou didst proudly and well like God, but the weak, unruly race of men are they gods? Oh, thou didst not know then that in taking one step, in making one movement to cast thyself down, thou wouldst be tempting God and have lost all thy faith in him and wouldst have been dashed to pieces against that earth which thou didst come to save. And the wise spirit that tempted thee would have rejoiced. I ask again, are there many like thee? Why is sacrifice regarded so highly? What is supreme about the act of giving? And why do we believe ourselves to be creatures so evolved that not only are we capable of such counter-instinctual behavior, but we also dignify and adulate it, and yet we have allowed it to become so warped and perverted that it is now a whip in the hands of the taskmaster? How did we let the powerful define sacrifice for the powerless? With these questions in mind, it's not difficult to understand a gravitation toward superheroes, toward the important notion of saviors as both leaders and peers. This is dangerous thinking to some, and as we'll see, plays a dual role as a tool of both the oppressor and the liberator. What might not be so clear for many, though, is which side is which? America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's on it forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, man, they saved my life. Grim, totalitarian, police style. 
Let's take a moment to talk about the fictional historical context of this particular incarnation of the Justice League. A year prior to the release of Justice League, just Justice League, remember that, that's the one we've been talking about, the book Justice League of America was plodding along with a different and yet equally motley lineup. In April of 1986, the League consisted of Zatanna, a sorceress who just says things backwards and then they happen, the Martian Manhunter, sole survivor of Mars, hates fire, has the deep voice in the cartoon, you know him. The Elongated Man, you can probably just guess. And Vixen, a former glamorous fashion model with an animal spirit totem that gives her amazing powers, and she is truly the only interesting character. And I mentioned her late in the first episode, and while she doesn't actually die prior to the Giffen and Demetrius series, the premiere issue of Justice League definitely makes you think she does. And then we have a trio of teenage superheroes. Gypsy, who has a very unfortunate name that I will not be repeating. Steel, but not the good one. This is the dumb white guy from World War II that no one's heard about. And Vibe, a young man whose abilities include vibrating things with his mind and dying a lot. This lineup exists because Aquaman, as last remaining original member and thus leader of the League, had, yet another year or so before this, had an emotional breakdown after a particularly devastating series of personal losses, including the death of his son and the subsequent dissolution of his marriage. As a result, he had gone on television in an announcement at the UN and told the world that the League was disbanding, much to the shock of the rest of the League on stage behind him. And that league was also another different ragtag band of mostly C-listers, and I'd go into it, but we've only got so much time left in these fleeting mayfly days of ours. In the midst of the disbanding and the revamping of the Justice League, still of America, mind you, the team moves to, of all places, Detroit, Michigan. Not a lot of people remember that one. Then, in the spring of 1986, comes what is possibly DC's, if not all of comic books, most famous giant super mega ultra uber major hyper universe spanning crossover event, Crisis on Infinite Earths, which had two very important functions. In the fiction, it killed off several major characters and effectively ended the stories of multiple less popular characters and groups of characters at the time. This served the second and more concrete purpose of streamlining the overwhelming number of needlessly interwoven DC books that fans were having to buy each month just to keep up with what was happening to their favorite superheroes. I'm a prisoner here like you. Let me give you a little context of what Crisis on Infinite Earths was trying to eradicate, but still fell prey to. To get the full story of the crisis, one would have had to purchase, on top of the 12 issues that constitute the main narrative, 39 other books. I'm a prisoner too. That's too many even for me, and I write about comics. So let's recap where we are on the timeline of shitty Justice Leagues, just to keep it all in order. 1. 
1984, Justice League of America Annual Number 2, Aquaman breaks up the band because he's sad and angry. Everyone moves to Detroit. 2. 1985, Justice League of America number 247, Crisis on Infinite Earths happens. Then, the League moves back to New York after basically just being evicted by the shitty grandfather landlord of one of the members. Just let that sink in. 3. 1987, Justice League of America number 261. It's the last issue of the series. J.M. DeMatteis is the writer, but Keith Giffen won't start contributing until the new series kicks off in a few weeks. A lot has happened in the past 14 months, but it doesn't actually matter. Everyone's basically dead and the Justice League of America is pretty much over. 4. 1987, a month later. Justice League number 1. If you've listened to episode 1 of the podcast... You know who's in it, you know what happens. And God help you. God help us all. So now that we're caught up, let's dive in. We're going to start with something crucial to any and all comic books that I've basically never mentioned yet in this podcast about comic books. We're going to talk about the cover. On the front of issue three, we see a beset upon league, and I almost said beleaguered there, but I'm a professional with a measured and restrained sense of humor, pressed together with their backs to a chain link fence that is covered in nuclear radiation warning signs. On all sides, they're surrounded by what we can only imagine are Russian soldiers in identical suits of blocky, Iron Man-esque full body combat armor, all white with a red star motif. Subtle. Each of these people is part of the recently conceived Rocket Red Brigade, which made its debut in an issue of the Green Lantern a few months prior at the start of 1987. Setting aside the bludgeon that is the costume design scheme for the moment, let's talk about the fact that Russia's premier superhero team, as ideated by creators in the US of course, is essentially an identityless coagulation of souls, reduced from individuals to a faceless hive mind. As we'll see, this is ubiquitous for Russian and, more generally, communist representation in Cold War U.S. media. Uniform-wearing, lock-stepped automatons with no thoughts, dreams, passions, desires, or truly even humanity that isn't fevering to please the party. Where did this idea of the death of the individual originate? Why is it so ingrained in the collective consciousness of the West? And isn't this an ironic line of questioning? The key, of course, lies in the fundamental difference of economic production between capitalism and communism. As Michael Parenti puts it so succinctly in his book Black Shirts and Reds, in communist countries, productive forces were not organized for capital gain and private enrichment public ownership of the means of production supplanted private ownership. For the uninitiated, the means of production that you'll so often hear about in communist or socialist arguments is just the stuff that it takes to make the things a worker is making, like your tools, or the factory you go to, or the office building you work in, or your work computer. That's all it is. Communists, and to some extent socialists, believe these things should be owned by groups of workers themselves rather than their bosses. 
As a deliberate scare tactic, Western media divined from a collective economic system the idea of a collective soul. While there is plenty of argument to be made that our material conditions determine and feed from our social and cultural ones, and I'd be one of the ones to make that argument, this is not the same as conflating a country where the bosses make less money and the workers make more with terrifying images of jackbooted thugs marching in lockstep, praising a supreme leader and building their entire lives and identities upon that praise. But this is exactly what the U.S. press did at the time. To the New York Times, Russia was a hulking beast, tugging at a disintegrating chain in its desire to overpower the U.S., while, at the same time, it was a frail joke of a country with a starving population and the economic equivalent of a bird with a broken wing. In a May 1983 article titled, CIA Sees Stagnation in Soviet, we are presented with a USSR that barely grinds along and is home to a massive population of poor alcoholics. They actually say that almost word for word in the article. A mere six months later, the Times published another article with the screeching title, Soviets to Bolster Nuclear Arsenal at Sea Against U.S. Finding these contradictions is not exactly difficult. Perhaps more damaging to our permanent view of the Russians was the approach the New York Times took regarding Soviet culture. For example, in another 1983 article, the Times patronizingly reported on a movie taking Russia by storm called Station for Two, characterizing it as a movie that basically every Russian had gone to see and loved because it featured, quote, within the forbidden confines of a penal camp, which is obviously much worse than an American labor prison. A romantic love story laced with enough tidbits of social satire, sex, humor, and everyday socialist life to set audiences a Twitter from Kaliningrad to Vladivostok. This article paints a picture of the inevitability of success of the movie, thus casting Russians as a movie-going monolith. Then they revealed the staggering number of ticket sales in the six months that the film had been out. 30 million entire Russians had gone to see it. Wow! Just for some parody here, I looked some stuff up. In 1982, about 161 million Americans went to see E.T. Also in 1982, the population of Russia was around 141 million. So in 1982, more Americans went to see E.T. than there were Russians at the time. It's a scary word, I know, and not one we often associate with those we consider the good guys. But this is propaganda, plain and simple. Propaganda is so much more than a quaint retro poster with blocky red, white, and black letters, or, for that matter, red, white, and blue. The end goal of these public relations projects, then, the final malignant result, is to demonize the idea that you or your community should be entitled to the value of what you make and of what you sacrifice. The flip side, of course, 
is to concretize and glorify the notion that the ruling class, your boss, your landlord, pork-bellied government officials, etc., deserve that value and those sacrifices more than you do. Through corporate media, they cast themselves as both the noble providers of opportunity and the brave defenders against the foreign monsters who would destroy our way of life. I know this probably all sounds a little paranoid to the newcomers, but if you take away anything from the numerous examples I've given in this episode and in previous, I hope that it's that all of this is deliberate and a matter of historical record that you can look up for yourself at any time. In perhaps the only successful implementation of trickle-down anything, this propaganda wormed its way into the American pop culture psyche. I'm sure you can think of all sorts of movies and TV shows from the time that feature faceless Russian thugs. And that happened in no smaller measure to comic books, as evidenced by the cover of this episode's issue and reinforced by the content within. Okay. Picking up immediately where the last issue left off, we're in the war room of our erstwhile terrorist dictator, Ruman Harjavti. And I'm sorry to do this to you, but I'm going to immediately pull us out of the comic once more to talk about something. This issue, issue number three of the Justice League, is only the second appearance ever of Ruman Harjavti. For an account of his first appearance and all the nothing that happens during, I suggest you re-listen to the previous episode and then tell all of your friends to do so as well. Please. Let's recap what we know about Harjavti so far. He's the military leader of Bialya. He had nuclear weapons. He's vaguely Middle Eastern? I only generalize because, as you may remember, Bialya isn't real. It's supposed to be part of the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. It's tucked just north of Lebanon, just west of Syria, and south of Turkey. Of course, in the Young Justice cartoon, it's completely unclear where the hell it's supposed to be, but I'm not here to rag on Young Justice because it's actually enjoyable. Harjavti is apparently a terrorist and a dictator, despite the fact that we have seen him neither terrorize nor dictate. And it should tell us something that since this book is so popular, people are very ready and willing to believe these two things with no questions asked and no narrative establishment necessary. Wild guess here, but I think that's called racism. Okay, back to the recap. Harjavti reiterates for the audience his plan to point the nuke-busting alien super trio from last issue... Silver Sorceress, the Scarlet Witch analog, Wand Gina, the Thor analog, and Blue Jay, the Yellow Jacket analog. Yeah, those are all those are all Marvel characters, but I talk about it in the last episode. Toward Russia in a bid to destroy their nuclear weapons. Blue Jay interrupts the colonel to rebuke him for his presumption that he can command the group. Harjavti apologizes and the trio depart for the Soviet Union. In a brief and dramatically ironic soliloquy, Harjavti reveals his rather obvious plan that he's intending to use these super beings to destroy the nuclear capabilities of all the countries of the world that he perceives as enemies in his bid to conquer it. What purpose this would serve is hazy, since the size and scope of the Bialian military is never established apart from the fact 
that they've also had their missiles destroyed, which is how these characters even met. On the next page, we're made to spend time with our mostly despicable protagonists. They're still on the Beetle plane and apparently have been for the last nine hours and change, after the events of the previous issue in which they flew from New York to the Middle East. So it's been a while. Tensions run high, and no one's having a good time, especially me. Batman comes close to exploding on Guy Gardner, the Green Lantern, but the Blue Beetle cuts him off to report that he's picked up three signals on the Beetle plane's radar. The group makes the natural and logical assumption that these three blips must be the nuke busters and immediately make haste in pursuit. During the chase, Blue Beetle makes the completely illogical leap that these three must be aliens because he's never heard of them. But before he can further process this conclusion, he rudely interrupts himself and everyone else on board by slamming the Beetle plane to a halt in midair. Before we get into why, I have two questions that immediately spring to mind. In the chaos of the midair stop, Guy Gardner takes the opportunity to grope the Black Canary who threatens to break parts of him. So the first question then is why hasn't anyone done this yet? A racist sex pest does not a good superhero make. The next question arises from a similar but much more delicate and respectful contact made by Captain Marvel and Dr. Light. Captain Marvel is actually a young boy who can transform into a phenomenally buff and powerful adult, so I'm assuming that it's only his youthful naivete that is stopping him from also making some sort of crude remark about getting his hands around a woman or whatever. But the question is, what the hell is Dr. Light doing there? She's not a member of the League. In fact, in previous issues, they took multiple pages and a flashback to establish expressly that she isn't. In fact, it's a plot point that she's not a member. So why did they bring her along? This is what keeps me up at night. Back to it, the Blue Beetle stopped the plane because while he apparently had no problem violating Bialian airspace the day before, he suddenly found himself at the border of the USSR. And that's just too much for him to deal with. The geography of the DC universe is a curious thing indeed. Although we can assume that the Beetle plane has some get up and go, they get to the border of the USSR in the apparent space of a conversation. And naturally, as soon as the world becomes communist, it also becomes a barren Arctic wasteland, which is next door to Beirut, apparently. This is when the Blue Beetle begins demonstrating one of the worst aspects of this entire comic book series, although to be fair, it becomes a lot more prevalent in later issues than it is in this first arc. He doesn't want to be shot down over the USSR, not because of any international tensions or concern for the well-being of his teammates, but because his Beetle plane cost him a lot of money. This is presented as a gag, but it's also deeply pernicious, and it plays directly into what we talked about back in episode one regarding the glorification of materialistic attitudes. It's just, it's just gross and I hate it. You might say I'm taking it too seriously, but if I didn't, then you wouldn't be here listening to me rant right now, so there. On the next page, we finally meet the Rocket Red Brigade that was surrounding the League on the cover. In sort of a nice scene that I unironically appreciate, the Brigade is taking a brief break 
from their patrol of the icy and possibly Mediterranean hellscape. And two of them are rather playfully discussing the merits of communist Russia over the violence and rampant crime prevalent in the U.S. Before they can get too mired in it, though, they receive an intruder alert and blast off to investigate. As they're flying away, what had been a nice scene is ruined by a joke about how they're not allowed to believe in God. Which means we have to do this now. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. One of the main pieces of propaganda you'll hear about communists is that they're godless heathens with no moral center. I'll admit that half of that is true in my case, but it's certainly not the first rule of Communist Club. Actually, there were some surprisingly right-wing voices that stood out against this narrative. In May of 1982, Reverend Billy Graham, world-famous batshit evangelical Christian preacher not exactly known for his communist sympathies, visited the USSR and was immediately vilified back home for remarks he made about his observations of the apparent freedom of religion in the country. Remarks that ran 180 degrees counter to the main line the U.S. press was towing. Defending his statements, he twanged to the Washington Post, You asked me what I saw. I saw three churches Saturday midnight packed with people preparing their hearts for worship on Sunday. Graham had to rebuff accusations that he himself had become a communist. He even went so far as to tell the press that freedom of religion is a relative notion. He then cited the fact that the U.S. at the time did not allow organized prayer in public school. Now, I for one don't want organized prayer in public school, but good for Billy Graham for recognizing that there was at least a tinge of hypocrisy when the U.S. howled that Christians in the USSR weren't allowed to worship, especially since that apparently wasn't true. Following the lines of force that we've established already about U.S. propaganda, it's easy to understand why the United States, feverish from the recent mixing of evangelical Christianity with neoliberal policymaking, would hammer, hammer, hammer about the fact that the USSR was a godless hell. The ruling class in the U.S., the class with inordinate, unconscionable, and growing amounts of power, would almost have to denigrate and demonize a rival economic system that would take that power and distribute it more evenly among the people. An economic system that is just and fair is antithetical to the American project, and the best way to counter this line of thinking is to hit it in the morals, no matter how nonsensical the propaganda necessary actually is. Okay, so... The Rocket Red Brigade catches up with the Beetle plane, and as they're bearing down upon it, we cut to inside the craft with yet another sort of nice little moment. A genuine rarity, and I'm astonished we got two in one issue. Two members of the League are actually having a conversation and almost enjoying each other's company. The Black Canary is sitting up front with the Blue Beetle, and given their surroundings, the discussion has naturally moved to Russian literature and Russian music. The two start to compare notes about their love for Dostoevsky when Beetle abruptly remembers that this comic is supposed to be awful and ends the conversation in a panic over how he could be about to start World War III. This is, of course, before he notices the Rocket Reds, but this is very soon to come. The Rocket Reds grab the Beetle plane's legs, 
And yes, it literally looks like a beetle. Way more than the bat plane looks like a bat. It is truly baffling. And Guy Gardner, arch-conservative of the group, is in hog heaven. Telling Batman, in so many words, to go fuck himself, the Green Lantern bolts out of the plane and screams at the Rocket Reds about how he's America's best superhero and that he's here and excited to violently attack some communists. He then proceeds to do so while singing God Bless America. It is over the top. During the ensuing battle, we cut to a rather dour scene in Moscow with some Soviet advisor approaching Gorbachev to brief him about the current situation. And it's definitely Gorbachev. If you nerds can tell that that's Gorbachev in that one ending of Street Fighter 2, you can definitely tell this drawing is of Gorbachev. Anyway, before the advisor can relay his news, we catch the last few words of Gorbachev's phone conversation. He's on the phone with Maxwell Lord and is agreeing to something. It's supposed to be spooky and mysterious. Gorbachev directs the advisor to call any and all Red Rocket Brigades off any hostility toward the Justice League and to focus instead on protecting the various nuclear facilities around the country. Just before this, Gorbachev mentions to his advisor that it hasn't been a particularly good year so far. Specifically, he mentions Chernobyl and Reykjavik. Reykjavik here is important because Gorbachev is referring to the failed peace talks in which the U.S. refused to constrain the research for the Strategic Defense Initiative, more commonly known as Star Wars, to laboratory work only. Gorbachev wouldn't accept this. I don't think any rational leader would. But naturally, the failure of the peace talks is all Russia's fault if you ask the American press. I'm not sure what happens. But thanks to the New York Times, since everyone in America thought that Russians were at once brilliant mad scientist supervillains and also dumb dumb local yokel drunks, we get a scene of nuclear missile sites activating, then nuclear subs going on alert, and then nuclear power plants doing something for some reason. Anyway, the doofus idiot Ruskies apparently fuck something up and one of their nuclear power plants goes critical. The League and the Rocket Reds haven't heard anything about this yet, and so the battle continues. This is where one of the memorable Black Canary moments I mentioned during her introduction in the first episode comes in. She beats the snot out of a Rocket Red for pretty much no reason, since she was sent out there to convince them that the League was there to help. Also, apparently Mr. Miracle can speak Russian. I'm guessing it's a function of his mysterious mother box that he keeps with him, which is pretty much a Swiss army knife of superpowers. But naturally, this is never explained. The Rocket Reds finally receive word from Moscow that their new orders are to assist with the melting down reactor, which is a convenient overlap with the fact that they were going to be pulled off that fight anyway, and it makes me think that maybe there was some sort of editorial rewrite or cutting that left the plot the way it is. Turning the page, we see the Nuke Busters have arrived at a nuclear power plant and are trying to convince the Rocket Red Brigade guarding it to stand aside and let them dismantle the place. No chance, obviously, but both sides appear to be trying to be reasonable at least. That is, until Wand Gina flips and assaults the brigade members. He's stopped from going full onslaught, though, by a rumble from the plant and a scream from Silver Sorceress. If you didn't see it coming, this was the very plant that was shown to be melting down earlier. Oh, and also the League has just arrived. 
The timeline is goofy, and everything is way too neatly packed and convenient, and it really takes you out of the moment. Upon learning of the impending meltdown, Guy Gardner suggests the League just leave, since everyone down there will be dead. This is when Mr. Miracle turns to try to finally confront Guy about his selfish, chauvinistic attitude and his appalling actions, but Batman cuts him off because Batman sucks. Where do we draw the line between ourselves and our community? Between ourselves and others? When are we individuals and when are we part of something greater? This isn't for me to dictate, but it is something I'd like to investigate more thoroughly at a later date. For now, though, a possibly relevant quote here. If we have chosen the position in life in which we can most of all work for humankind, no burdens can bow us down, because they are sacrifices for the benefit of all. Then we shall experience no petty, limited, selfish joy, but our happiness will belong to millions. Our deeds will live on quietly, but perpetually at work, and over our ashes will be shed the hot tears of noble people. From Reflections of a Young Man by Karl Marx. We have before us one of the few truly good sequences in the entire series. As everyone mills about, defeated and helpless around the melting down reactor, Wand Gina makes a call and takes action. Blowing everyone away with a whirlwind, he clears his path to the reactor core and flies headfirst into it. He crashes through the wall as Captain Marvel restrains the Silver Sorceress to stop her from going in after him. In the stress of the moment, a Rocket Red and Silver Sorceress argue desperately over who is to blame for all of this. Martian Manhunter urges them to stop and listen. The world has gone silent. A broken but triumphant Wand Gina emerges from the hole in the reactor and announces that everyone is safe, then collapses to the ground, devastated by exertion and exposure. And you would think that he was dead, but they immediately ruin it on the next page by showing him on a gurney being wheeled into an ambulance by people in radiation suits who look startlingly like Marvel AIM agents, I have to add. The writers also take this opportunity for a pot shot at Russia with a line one of the Rocket Reds says to Batman, our medical teams are well prepared to deal with radiation illnesses. We are by now experienced in these matters. Cool stuff. No, I get it. Thanks. <laughs> the Brigade then lays claim to the care and detention of the trio of nukebusters and orders the League to leave Russia immediately. The League complies with only a modicum of protestation. During the flight home, 
they discussed the events of the previous days, as there had been no word of any of what had transpired on any of the news channels or broadcast frequencies, the Blue Beetle questions with slack-jawed disbelief how and why something so tremendous and monumental could have been hushed so completely. In his words, it's a cover-up that makes Watergate look like a fib. We'll almost certainly be talking about Watergate in a later episode, because it's a lot more complicated than you think it is. Batman then explains to the Beetle that the Russians most likely kept the super-powered aliens in a bid to lessen the superhero gap. For those of you who don't get it, this is sort of a tongue-in-cheek reference to the supposed missile gap between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. The idea was that because the USSR had a much larger military buildup, particularly in ballistic missile arsenals, the U.S. was under the threat of an immediate annihilation that they wouldn't be able to respond to in kind, even should anyone be left alive after the initial onslaught. Congressperson John Kennedy actually campaigned on this notion in his 1958 presidential bid that would land him in the White House. He's even credited with coining the phrase. There was just one major problem with all of this that I bet you can see coming. It was totally untrue. America then, as now, had a massive military complex that towered over all other militaries in the world, and it hasn't stopped growing since. In what appears to me to be a strange case of history rhyming, and rhyming and rhyming and rhyming, a conservative professor at the University of Chicago, surprise, surprise, Albert Volstetter, wrote an article for Foreign Policy in 1974 called Is There a Strategic Arms Race? and claimed in it that the U.S. government has been drastically underestimating the scale and scope of Soviet... of Soviet... of Soviet... has been... Dra- had... goddamn and claimed in it that the U.S. government had been drastically underestimating the scale and scope of Soviet buildup over the years for a few rather odd reasons. One claim in the article was that the initial proponents of the missile gap theory were so embarrassed when they learned it was untrue that they have been overcorrecting since. This argument falls flat when you remember that Kennedy himself had most likely been briefed by intelligence agencies about how not true it was prior to fear-mongering about the situation on the campaign trail. In a stunningly anachronistic display of what we might today call the weaponization of wokeness, Volstetter also claimed in the piece that the U.S. estimates had been characteristically ethnocentric and had failed to account for an increase in Russian missiles that were designed to reach Europe only. Conservative government officials clamored for the CIA to amend its estimates, prompting Henry Kissinger to step in and reassure everyone that the U.S. did, in fact, have missile superiority. Perhaps, in this one instance, people should have actually listened to him. Because of concerted, conservative attacks against the government's estimates of Soviet military capability, in 1976, at the urging of one man whom you may have heard of, President Gerald Ford approved the plan to construct a team of, quote, outside experts to investigate 
and either validate or correct the years of annually published national intelligence estimates that were purported to be wrong. Obviously, what they come out with is going to be far worse. Ford assigned the creation of the team to another man you might have heard of. In a very interesting little wrinkle, it's an oft-forgotten fact that the first man you may have heard of basically secured the job for the second. These men were none other than Ford's chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld, and Ford's notably second director of the CIA, one George Herbert Walker Bush. And he is alive. Yes, and rules more ruthlessly than ever. For at least a year and a half prior, Rumsfeld and his associate Paul Wolfowitz, then a member of the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, but now, like Rumsfeld, known for being a war criminal of the highest order and a major player in the evasion of Iraq, had been plotting ways to spin up propaganda that made the USSR appear to have abandoned the idea of mutually assured destruction. They wanted to make it look like the USSR believed they could start and win a nuclear war. The article by Volstetter in Foreign Policy then provided ample opportunity to do so by justifying the creation and presentation of some grossly inaccurate facts and figures in an official report that would eventually be leaked to both Democrats and Republicans right after Jimmy Carter's election in 76. This was to make it appear bipartisan, but if we'll remember our history of liberalism and the Democrats from the last episode, it wouldn't be a stretch to believe this charade of balance probably wasn't necessary to convince the Democrats to rattle the sabers and spend even more money on the military instead of social programs. Again and again and again, we see propaganda distorting our view of the world, of reality. These lies were not aimed at the Soviet Union or China or Cuba. They were aimed at us. And with each new salvo, we are asked to sacrifice more and more, not for our families or communities, but for Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and Boeing. And it runs so much deeper than anyone not vigilant against it would even suspect. This is why Dr. Strangelove can have a gag about a mineshaft gap. This is why Batman can claim the Russians have a superhero gap. All of this trickles. It's a top-down form of control. And not terrifically unlike one the Justice League will be pushing back against, although ultimately acquiescing to, as soon as they return to headquarters to find none other than billionaire business tycoon Maxwell Lord, who has broken in and brought with him the apparent newest member of the League that he has decided to foist upon them, garish con artist from the future, Booster Gold. But that's our story for the next issue. Greetings out there in listener land. This announcer is happy to report that our station is in the process of being rebuilt bigger and better than ever after the tragic Bring Your Child to Work Day fire that burned down half the building. We couldn't have done it without community care and community support. 
Yes, truly great things happen when we all work together and share the fruits of our labor, don't they? It is, indeed, our listeners and community members who make this show possible. Therefore, we'd like to propose a town hall meeting and potluck in the coming weeks to discuss how we can give back to you. What would you like to hear from this station? What can we provide more or less of? Do you have any comic book stories or panels that you'd like to see featured on the show? We're open to community input. For those of you who can't make it to the festivities, we urge you to write us on Instagram at Collective Action Comics Podcast, on Twitter at Call Comics, C-O-L-C-O-M-I-X, or via email at CollectiveActionComics at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you, and as always, tune in in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of Collective, Collective Action, Action Comics. Comics.